Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Before we dive into today's message, we would like to share a unique opportunity with you. On Saturday, April 2nd, we will be hosting our second annual Quest 5K Run and 1K Family Walk to meet the needs in our own backyard. This year, all proceeds will benefit Westerville Area Resource Ministry and Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Ohio. Registration for runners, walkers, donors, and sponsors are open now at gotoquest.org slash 5K. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org slash 5K. Now, let's dive into today's message. Now through Easter, we are uh, in a series called Jesus Is. Last week, we talked about Jesus Is Compassion. And uh, we talked about the fact that uh, Jesus' idea of compassion is a little different than our culture's idea. It's more than a feeling. It actually is a feeling that drives every action we're about. And we used this little Japanese uh, proverb metaphor last week to kind of illustrate that. And let me just review that. And it starts with this question, what sound does rain make? And if you recall from last week, the answer to that proverb is rain doesn't make any sound until it hits something. And it's the same with compassion, and it's the same with the evidence of compassion, which is grace being lived out. Neither one of those things become real till they they hit somebody's broken heart, somebody's wounded heart, somebody's hurt in their thing, or or even somebody's hatred. We talked about an example last week where Jesus uh, allowed his compassion to rest upon somebody who everybody hated, and when that happened, everybody dropped their rocks and walked away instead of being angry. Compassion brings that kind of change. It changes our hearts when we're fearful, when we're anxious, when we're broken. It changes us. And even when we're not in those states, when we're just peaceful and joyful, compassion is something that that makes our life overflow with this love and this joy in our life. And today we're going to talk about the fact, though, that for us as followers of Christ, it's not just a feeling and it's not just an action. But if we look in Jesus' example of compassion, it's also power. There's this power of God that shows up when we give ourselves the ability to respond to the Spirit's compassion in us. And we're going to talk today about how Jesus is power. He's the kind of power that when we're hit by that, things change. When we're hit by it, our life changes. When we're hit by it, supernatural things happen in our lives. Things we don't know how to solve get solved. Things like healing happen. Doors that have been slammed shut that we haven't been able to open begin to open. Difficult relationships find reconciliation. In general, when we experience His power combined with His compassion, light shines in the dark areas of our lives because of God's power. Again today, we're going to look at one primary story. There's lots of stories we could look at. And unlike last week where our story was a parable that Jesus told, this week is actually a real real interaction that's recorded in two of the Gospels that Jesus has. It's recorded in Mark 2 and in Luke 5. We're going to actually look at Luke's version of it. And it says this. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, 
They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And when they saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and went home, praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have, we have seen remarkable things today. In this text, in this story, in this interaction, I'm sure you see that there's just a myriad of thoughts and feelings and desires going on in the middle of this packed room. I mean, the power of Jesus becomes vivid in this story right before our eyes. So I want us to take a little bit of a closer look, and I want to use our imaginations today to allow ourselves to put each of ourselves in that moment. By the time this happens, Jesus has already been ministering for about a year publicly, and he's hugely popular. I mean, it was, it was an amazing year. He would preached his first sermons, and the people just created a huge stir. He had healed many. He healed a leper we see earlier in this. He turned water to wine. He had cast out demons from people and delivered them from evil. He had already taken time to appoint his 12 closest followers, his 12 closest disciples, out of the more than 100 people who were following him everywhere he went. And the crowds were steadily increasing. And can you imagine for a second if you were Jesus... And every time you walked out of your house, there were a hundred plus people there waiting to follow you around. I mean, can you imagine a simple thing like a trip to the grocery store and you go out and there's a hundred people in tow? I mean, I think Kroger would actually offer to deliver your goods for you, right? I mean, because why would they want you coming in with all these hundred people, half of them trying to throw their sick people in front of you so you'd heal them and they're coughing all over their food just while you're there just trying to get broccoli, Right? I mean, just imagine that for a second. And right before this incident in the Mark account, we see this in Mark 145. It says, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. He created huge traffic jams wherever he went. And within those large crowds, there were certainly the adoring fans from all over, but there was also this growing shadow element of religious leaders that ranged from people who were quietly believing in him to skeptically curious to hostile because he threatened everything that they felt they stood for as religious leaders. And now, in this story, we see them all gathered in this home. And it's most likely Peter's home. We don't know that for sure, but it's most likely Peter's home because that's where he lived in the town of Capernaum. And what are they wanting? Are they wanting him to teach? Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean his teaching is impressive. They, they talk about his teaching as having authority, right? There's this, there's this weighty presence of God to his teaching that they just haven't experienced before. But, but what they're really most focused on was his power. They wanted healing. 
They wanted deliverance. They wanted miraculous provision. They wanted to see a miracle because they were curious. His power, they wanted to see it because they recognized that Jesus is power. So can you imagine Jesus sitting in the middle of this room? The religious leaders sitting on the floor all around him, arms folded, their posture ranging from proud expert with my PhD checking him out to hostile to somewhat open, maybe, possibly, but there's people packed all around them, tight, standing up behind them. I mean, there's people standing on Peter's bed trying to get into the house, and there are children on the shoulders of the parents, and if they had rafters in there, there's probably people sitting in the rafters. I mean, this is a picture of hot, sweaty bodies packed against hot, sweaty bodies all the way out the front door, cascading out that front door, all the way around the street and the house in front of them. People are outside whispering things like, Hey, what did Jesus say? And everybody in front of them saying, Shh, I can't tell you if you keep talking, right? I mean, can you picture this crowd? Others were trying to bring their sick, or some of them themselves were sick, and they were walking, and they were pressing into the crowd, and they were jockeying for position to try to get closer to Jesus. This is the picture. And then along comes these four guys carrying their buddy on a mat, their paralyzed friend on a mat. He's likely the one in the crowd with the most need for physical healing of anybody there. And yet the crowd won't let him through to even see Jesus. So they go around back, they make their way up to the roof, and then let your mind go to Peter standing next to Jesus in the house as as the men start to tear the tiles off the roof and start to dig through the, the mud and straw and wooden, you know, roof that's underneath the tiles. And, and Jesus, this man of tremendous importance and fame, sits there while this is going on, trying to teach the crowd with some of the most important, powerful people in Israel listening to him. This is a power-packed room. So when you think of power in general, even just today, or powerful people, what do you you think about? What comes to mind? I mean, right now, politicians calling each other names comes to mind, right? But when you think of it outside of that, when I think of powerful people, I think of busy people who don't appreciate unwanted interruptions. I think of people who like to go out among the people, but but they're never really among the people because of their bodyguards or the choice of the stores or restaurants they go to that common people can't afford to go to. They, they, they spend life kind of out and about, but you see them kind of insulating themselves a little bit from people. You see powerful people, you admire them, but they often keep themselves protected, except for their efforts to go out and have a reputation with people so that they can increase their influence and their power and their public image. Just the concept of power itself, I mean, even think about that. How many of you like to stick your finger in an electric socket, right? There's something about power that that is unpleasant at times. It repels you, and and when you're around that power, you're cautious. Even even while you, you know that power is something you want, power is something you need in your life, you admire it and you want to be around it, but power is generally not warm and receptive, right? Can you imagine the religious leaders in this room, all hot and bothered as these guys start to dig through the roof, the dust and the dirt falling on their nice clothes, dust getting in their eyes, dust that they're breathing in and they're coughing as it crumbles 
from the stealing, offended by the gall of someone who would destroy someone else's roof in such a selfish manner. Can you imagine the look on impulsive Peter's face as he sees an unwanted skylight being put in his roof? I mean, and yet there's this sense when you read this story and look at how Jesus responds to this person and his four friends that gives you this picture, this sense that Jesus is kind of almost sitting there with a twinkle in his eye and a little bit of a grin on his face. I can imagine him continuing to talk to the Pharisees and the leaders and all the people there trying to teach them as a a clump of dried mud and straw hits him on the head and he he just brushes it off, having a little bit of a hard time not laughing about what is going to happen as he watches both the Pharisees and Peter both squirm for different reasons. So if this was you in Jesus' place, in your friend's house, what would you do in that moment? I don't know, maybe you're nicer than I am, but I'd probably get up if I was Jesus and I'd exert my authority and I'd exert my power and I'd say, stop it. And if they wouldn't stop it, I'd probably call the police and have them arrested for ruining my ceiling, right? But Jesus welcomes it because Jesus is power and he's the kind of power that is approachable and welcoming and warm. It's a complete contrast to how we think about people of power in our world today and how Jesus responds in this instance. And as we look at Jesus across the board, we see him welcoming kids into his lap and and, and talking with them and hugging them and laughing with them. We see him playing with them. We see, see, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the singular patient focus that he can have on, on people who are destitute when the woman of the issue of the blood comes to him. He just stops in the middle of a crowd and she's his entire world in that moment. And we see him so welcoming and warm to people who are normally rejected when we see him with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. His power is attractive and approachable. It's not scary. It's not something that keeps people at a distance. In fact, he absolutely loves us seeking him out for his power to be made known and real in our lives. He is so approachable. And as we see the hole in the ceiling get bigger and bigger and more light is let in and all of a sudden it goes dark as they start to lower their man that they want to get healed through that hole. And everyone in the room, you can just imagine them squinting as it gets dark for that moment, their eyes trying to adjust to see what the friends are lowering as they lower their paralyzed friend down on his cot, dust still floating in the air, right in front of Jesus, causing actually probably a few of the religious leaders to scramble and get out of the way, losing their place of significance. All the while, they're probably thinking, this man... This sick and paralyzed man, because of his, probably because of his own sin, is this way. And he's taking my place. We know that the religious leaders probably thought that because we see them confronting Jesus elsewhere, saying, these people who are sick, it must be because of their sin. And so we know that that's the thinking of the religious leaders. So you can imagine them thinking of that in that moment, right? And when I picture this, I... I see Jesus, and I, I think I see him beginning to almost chuckle, this kind of light-hearted chuckle in the midst of all the tension. It's, it's not a mean, it's not a disrespectful thing. It's that, it's that he knows that there's going to be some really good things turn out of this moment, even as he with others cough and sneeze from the dust that's still settling. See, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. 
He knows that there's been faith of these friends that has motivated this moment and that this is why he's actually here. And all of this awkward uncomfortableness of this scene, Jesus smiles because Jesus knows that's why he's here today. That's why he's come, why he's in the house at this moment to show that there is more to life and more to faith than teaching and ideas and beliefs. There's power. Power that doesn't repel us, doesn't shock us, doesn't intimidate us or keep us at a controlled distance, but power that attracts us and power that welcomes us coming close and receiving and asking for Him to touch us in that moment. The power of God that is eager to be real in each and every one of our lives because Jesus is power. You see, as this man is being lowered, uh, 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 the, the disgust likely became palpable in the room as, as the whispers of these religious Pharisees started saying, are these, are these guys going to pay for the roof? How dare they not wait in line and instead cut in line in such a costly, unthoughtful, and destructive way? How rude is that? And then Jesus says something that shocks the room, something totally unexpected. I mean, we see this guy clearly crippled on a cot, which has probably been the only real estate he's known since he became paralyzed. We don't know if it was from birth. We don't know if it was an accident. We don't know when it happened. But since the time he's been paralyzed, his only view of life has probably been looking up at people looking down at him, being dependent and largely helpless. And now he's right in front of Jesus. And he's maybe a little embarrassed because of the interruptive, destructive efforts of his friends and what they've gone through to get him there, to lower him in front of some of the most important men in all of Israel. But there he is, right at the center, with Jesus looking at him. And Jesus looks at the man, I can imagine, with this visible compassion and joy in his eyes. And he says with a softness and a pleasure in his voice, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend. Jesus calls him friend. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? But, but that's nice, but it's not healing. Your sins are forgiven? I mean, that's awesome too, but, but the guys on the roof are thinking, that's great, but we didn't go through all this work of putting a skylight in for just forgiveness, right? And then the man on the cot is thinking, I, I love that, Jesus. That, that is so amazing, but, but I was really hoping for more. I was hoping to walk, Jesus. But before they can even fully think that or say that, the shadow of the religious leaders, their, their angry grunts, their closed body posture, their unmistakably fills the room with dissent. See, the religious leaders are dumbstruck. They are furious. I mean, those who quietly believed in Jesus, they, they were disheartened. Those leaders who were mildly resistant, they were now totally against Jesus. And those who were hostile, they're having a hard time not picking up all the, the muck from the ceiling and throwing it at Jesus and beginning to stone him right there and then and there. Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And religious leaders are thinking, how, how could such a sinner be a friend? That's not even right. But what they're really ticked at is the fact that the Jewish faith, and the Bible does teach that you say, that, that, that for somebody to say your sins are forgiven is, is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. 
See, the religious leaders, according to the Jewish thought of the day, are rightly thinking. Jesus is claiming to be God. That's the only possible way he can say, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus knows the thoughts of their hearts, and he's, he's saddened by it, but he's, but he's not surprised. I mean, it seems Jesus is enjoying being, to me, a little provocative in this moment, and thinking, I can imagine him thinking, have you, have you not seen all that I've done? How the kingdom of God has been breaking in through me over and over again in power. But Jesus' more warm compassion shines through again while he, while he thinks, I'm going to show you again. I'm going to give you another opportunity to believe in more than just belief and obedience to ideals, but to know the tangible presence and power of God as well. So Jesus is going to tease their thinking again, not, not meanly, but to help them open up. So he says, which is easier? Which is easier? To forgive someone their sins or to say to this paralyzed man, get up and walk? When we hear Jesus ask that question, I suspect most of us would immediately answer, well, it's harder to make the man walk than to say, I forgive you. So we see this healing as proof of the power to forgive sins. And it is. But again, in the Jewish theological mindset, it was actually more difficult to forgive sins. Because sin is the origin of all the brokenness, all the sickness, all the depravity, all the deformity in the world. See, healing the man would only be a healing of the consequence of sin and not the cause. And only God can heal the cause. You can hold that point for a second. Only God can heal the cause, forgive sin that causes all the brokenness in our world. Yet they also knew that, that outside of this, they, they'd seen Jesus heal so many people, and, and they hadn't seen healings like that since the time of Elisha and Elijah, centuries and centuries early. So while sin is harder to forgive, sickness, especially paralysis in their mind, is this powerful demonstration of God's hand being at work in Jesus. So Jesus goes on and says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, and he actually uses that term Son of Man intentionally. It's actually a, a messianic term used in the Old Testament. So the religious leaders and most of the people would have known that Jesus was claiming divine divinity there and being the Messiah when he used that term. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. With confidence in his heart and this compassionate smile on Jesus' face, he says these simple, no-big-deal words, almost like their second, that secondary natural reaction. Get up, take your mat, go home. Your soul is free. Your sins are forgiven. You're healed. Come on, what are you waiting for? Get up. Take your mat and go home and have a celebration with your family. Just go have a party. Enjoy this unbelievable moment of encountering the power of God that goes beyond all of your expectations. Jesus healed many up to this point. That's not that big of a deal. They all saw that. They were all coming for that. But to love someone so much, to not only heal them, but forgive them and set them free internally from the guilt and the shame and all that baggage of life. 
I mean, since being paralyzed, this man had largely spent most of his time in in pain and and despair and rejection and ridicule and people asking him, what sin did you commit to deserve this, right? And now he stands face to face with Jesus smiling at him. And he stands before many of the most respected spiritual leaders of his day, healed, forgiven, and free. And what Jesus is saying in this moment in such a vivid, vivid fashion for us is, my power covers anything and everything. You see, Jesus is power that is stronger than anything and everything. One of my favorite lectures in college uh, was a, a professor giving us a lecture on this healing idea from Mark. And actually, our, our Healing One course recently went through the same outline a few weeks ago. And uh, it's this way that Mark picks these stories that illustrate how Jesus has power over everything. And so let me just give you a very super short summary of that. Maybe you can go home and look up some of these verses and and you can just let yourself meditate on it and, and soak in the fact that God also wants to be that kind of power to you in your life. In Mark 1.21, Jesus shows us that he has power over evil, demonic forces. Any, any evil around us, he has power over. Mark 1.29 and following we, it shows that Jesus healed all kinds of sickness. Basically, he has authority over all sickness. Mark 2, which is the same as the story we, we read from Luke today, says Jesus has authority and power over sin. Mark 4.35 and following, Jesus has power over nature as we see him calm the storm and, and calm the angry waves. We see in Mark 5:21 that he has power over death as he goes and heals and raises this little girl from the dead. We see in Mark 6:30 that he has power over all hunger and provision needs we'd ever have in our life as he multiplies fish and loaves for 5,000. See Mark's selection of these stories from Jesus' ministry vividly portray that Jesus has the power to overcome and meet any and every need we have in our lives. But even though we look at the account that we've talked about primarily today and all these other accounts and all the other actions of Jesus, and we see this amazing picture of faith and and forgiveness and the working of Jesus' power and the reality of people's lives and in our world, I think that if we're honest, I think that if I'm honest with myself and all of us are honest, that many of us, even though we've experienced bits of that power, maybe we've seen some people healed or talked to some people or healed, or maybe we've experienced moments that were just these divine encounters and a door opening or a decision or, or orchestration of a relationship or things where we've had these divine encounters. I think our gut reaction when we look at this is, is we still look at it and go, well, yeah, the, the, this, is a, this is just a nice Bible story. It's, it's something that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was here walking among us. I mean, it's, a, it's also a story you'd expect to see in Scripture when God was trying to write a story about His power and communicate to us. So it, it just kind of stays kind of removed, and it's not something that we just have this nagging doubt that sometimes we go, I don't know if I'd really fully expect that to happen in my life today. I mean, even if we believe in miracles, there are still parts of ourselves, sometimes big parts of ourselves, that live with this expectation that that kind of stuff, you know, just doesn't happen all too often today, at least, at least not in my life. And let's stop and think about that for a moment. If there's even a tiny ounce of skepticism around this and other stories in the Bible of Jesus' power, ask yourself, what, what is that about? What's, what's that about? 
If there's any level of doubt that this could happen today, this kind of power could happen today, that someone could be physically healed or or whatever it is, what's the seedbed of that doubt in your heart and your mind? If you're like most of the Western world, I guess it's probably a couple things that might be there. I mean, some of it's skepticism because we don't see like, feel like we see these spiritual manifestations as often as we think we should or as often as we want to. Or we struggle because we've been raised so strongly in this natural law worldview and this scientific explanation that everything needs a scientific explanation that we struggle with God's power breaking in and disrupting those laws and changing them. Or maybe it's just the simple skepticism that we talked about in the message a few weeks ago on unanswered prayer that leaves us wanting to be in control of our explanations of life. Another one of my favorite lectures in college was actually done by the dean of the seminary at the time. He had his MDiv from Asbury. Yoo-hoo, Jeremy. Okay, yeah. Well, Jeremy's not in here, sorry. That's his alma mater. Um, he got his master's of theology from Princeton University. He got a master's of philosophy and a, master, a PhD from Drew University. He was a bit of an overachiever when it came to academics and research and study. He summarized in one hour his major research from his dissertation for us. And his dissertation was all about studying how the power of God to heal, to show up in miracles and signs and wonders has happened in every generation since the time of Jesus. It has never gone away. Physical healing, spiritual manifestations, power over sickness and death, power over nature in every century since Jesus. He went through every century, third century. He got to the fourth century. He talked about St. Patrick. He talked about how every century during the Middle Ages had encounters and outbreaks of God's power showing up in very real ways. Even as you read the journals of some of the great, most respected leaders in all of Christian history, John Wesley, John Calvin, and Moody, you see in their journals evidence and records of God showing up in healing and power and miracles. In the last 150 years in Christendom has seen one of the greatest outbreaks of healing and power all throughout the world. In fact, the Christianity in the last 150 years has been growing faster worldwide than it did in any other time other than the first century or so. And most of the ways it's growing are places where they are experiencing and praying for and believing for and seeing God show up in healing and miracles and power of God. Jesus is power. And that power is alive and well today. See, Jesus' healing of the paralytic was not just physical, but it was spiritual. And Jesus is after wholeness in every aspect of our lives. And yet what is kind of strange today is that we are more okay with the power to forgive sins than the power of God and Jesus to show up in healing us physically. There's a guy named Jarrett Stevens. He used to be one of the teaching pastors at Willow Creek, and he's now a writer and a speaker who says it this way. He says the Pharisees and religious leaders were ticked off that Jesus said the paralytic was forgiven. But in our culture today... We totally expect that God will forgive our sins. In fact, in so many of our hearts, we feel he's kind of obligated to do so. We kind of almost think, oh, I sinned. Yeah, God will forgive me. Do you see how that kind of flipped it? For us, there's no real miracle anymore in the fact that your sins can be forgiven, that your soul can be set free. If anything... 
we're more skeptical about something physical happening in our lives. And in flipping that from Jesus' day to our day, we not only have devalued Jesus' power to heal, to deliver, to provide his power over nature, but we've actually also devalued the power of forgiveness by assuming that forgiveness is just kind of this really easy thing for God to accomplish. Treating it by thinking, of course he'll do it. It's no big deal. See, Jesus' power to forgive is very real. And it is a free gift. And it is proof of the greatest depths of love and the greatest level of power that God has ever shown us in all of history. That even in our sin, our rejection of Him, our unbelief, our questioning of His wisdom, that Jesus still comes to us and He loves us. And He offers to eliminate the gap between us and Him. And He invites us into His power for our lives in every way, beginning with forgiveness. If, if we will just admit our sin, if we will admit our need for Him and ask forgiveness of Him and let Him come close and let Him be the Lord and leader and wisdom of our life, the one who defines our life purpose and leads us into it, the one who defines our identity and leads us to wholeness, the one who, on whom we rely for all power and authority and all truth in our lives. And the simple fact is if, if you're here today and you've never made the decision to accept that gift... You've never placed your absolute allegiance in the power of Jesus' hands for life and salvation. That requires a decision. It requires a decision for us to receive that great gift, the power to forgive, the power to restore right relationship between us and God. You can't work for it. You can't be a good enough person for it. I mean, all of us, none of us, me, you, we're all never going to be perfect. We're all going to fail. We're all going to sin. We're never going to be good enough. And we have to make a decision to accept that gift of God. And if you haven't made that decision today, then I want to invite you to make it now. And just as Jesus demonstrated us through the story that he is so approachable, just tell him in your own words. Tell him in your own words that you need him, that you need to confess your sin, that you need to ask forgiveness, and that you're going to want to follow him, and you can declare your right allegiance to him. And you can do that right now, right where you're at, in your own words, in your own mind, at this moment. And when you make that decision, Jesus also commands that the next step for that is this public statement of that decision, and a celebration of that decision. It's baptism. So I want to encourage you to contact Jeremy. If you've made that decision or if you've never taken the step to be baptized yet, contact him and be a part of that class and do it the next time it comes up. Today, I want to leave us, whether we are still still uncertain of our faith, whether we're newbies in it, whether we're, we've been in our faith a long time but we still wrestle with this power thing, or whether, or whether we have a lot of experience with God bringing power into our lives, I want us to just leave today celebrating the power of God over everything with the encouragement for all of us that Jesus welcomes us coming to him for power, that he's approachable, 
He's eager to lead us in knowing how to walk in that power, how to minister out of that power to other people in the way we pray, in the way we pray for healing, the way we pray for answers for other things. And he knows where each of us are at in that journey of understanding how to experience his spirit and how to walk in that power. And he takes us right where we're at, whether we're awkward in that or whether we've been really comfortable with that for a long time. He takes us right where we're at. And Jesus says to us later in John, I believe it's 14, I forgot to look it up, and my memory isn't always good, that we, the church, with his power of the Holy Spirit, will do more than he ever did while he was on earth. Today, we've given a quick glimpse, just a really summary fashion look at how powerful Jesus is, how approachable he is, how desirous he is that we experience and live in not just belief, not just morals, not just ideals, but power, his power over sin, over sickness, over nature, over our needs for provision, over our needs for wisdom, over everything. And I want to encourage you today, whether you doubt God's ability to show up in power, whether you're just convinced of it, to just spend time thinking about this invitation, pondering. God, what is it like to walk in that kind of power? To spend some time with these stories and ask God, would you show me by your spirit how I can learn to experience this, how I can learn to walk in this, how when I care for a friend, I'm not just trying to be kind words, but I can actually administer your power and let you bring change here. Let you see the joy of your power at work. Lord, we just ask that you would come to us. Because we know from even this story and from elsewhere that you love, you love for us to know how to follow your Holy Spirit. You love for us to know how to minister in your power. In fact, Lord, you love it when we're awkward and weak and you, you, you show up because we still allow our faith to be expressed by, by praying and by seeking and by being open to you. So, Lord, would you come and take each and every one of us, wherever we're at in this journey of understanding your spirit and how you lead and how you work in power, would you take each and every one of us where we're at and would you help us to take that next step day by day that we would find the joy of a life full of power, full of your presence, that the weight of the burdens of our life would fall away as you come and carry them for us that the weight of the burdens of sickness and care and worry in our friends' lives would fall away as your power becomes known to them and you carry those things. And Lord, you say you inhabit our praise, you inhabit our worship, so as we continue to worship now, I pray that your presence would be made known in a way that we sense you here with us and that we would revel in your presence and love being in your presence right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to our sermon podcast. If you are interested in learning more about Quest, who we are, and what we do, please visit gotoquest.org slash connect. If you are interested in supporting Quest financially, you can give quickly and easily by visiting gotoquest.org slash giving. This page will walk you through all the options to give online, via text message, or through the PushPay app. If you are loving Quest and the podcast, 
Let us know by tagging Quest in your Facebook or Twitter post and use the hashtag GoToQuest. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check back in next week for another great message.